Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Um, welcome to the caregiver session. I'd like to introduce to you um, Gary Varg. He is um, from Florida caregiver.com. So it's a little different from our caregiver session. So we'd like to welcome him up and he's going to talk to you guys about positive caregiving. Thank you so much, Melody. I appreciate it. And thanks for inviting me. This is a great uh, event and I've met a lot of terrific people. So very nice. According to one of my Favorite family caregivers, former First Lady Rosalind Carter. There are only four kinds of people in this world. Those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. And I think true words have never been spoken. My name is Gary, and I'm a caregiver. I'm a serial caregiver. Let's put, <laughs> let's put it that way. I'm also author of the books, um, The Fearless Caregiver, Caregiving Ties That Bind, and You Are Not Alone, which we wrote uh, during the COVID pandemic, we had hosted about 250 fearless caregiver conferences around the country in person from 98 until March of 2020, when for some reason it all kind of stopped. And uh, we just knew that being involved and being with other caregivers and not isolating yourself was really the answer. So we, we wrote a book that allowed at least that kind of uh, interactivity and that kind of lessons that we tried to impart at the Fearless Caregiver Conferences. And then we started doing them uh, virtually. We did about 12 virtual Fearless Caregiver Conferences until we started back in person uh, about exactly a year ago. And the virtual events, they worked well. It was fine. People were asking questions and interacting. The only thing is virtual hugs are not as good as real hugs. So we were thrilled to get back on the road. And this week, uh, we're going to be doing our 305th Fearless Caregiver Conference. And this one will be in uh, Port St. Lucie. And next week, we'll be in um, uh, Casa Grande, Arizona. And the week after, we'll be in uh, Williamsburg, uh, Virginia, and then uh, Miami, and then uh, uh, New Haven. Uh, we've, we've hosted the events in 47 cities in 26 states, and some places were back for the 2025th year because it's about interacting. It's about not isolating. It's about sharing your wisdom with your fellow caregiver. Um, I'm also editor-in-chief of today's Caregiver Magazine and uh, Caregiver.com, both celebrating our 28th year uh, this, this year. Um, you know, the, the reason we travel and go around the country and we've been, haven't been here, and that ha we have to change that. We've been in California about uh, eight times, been on the West Coast a bunch, 
in Alaska. Um, it's because I always say that so, uh, caregiving is um, so personal and so interactive that it's uh, national in implication. You need to know what's going on in federal government, who's on your side. You need to know what's going on at your state level, uh, what Medicare, Medi-Cal, uh, Medicaid uh, you know, is going on, uh, what kind of support you're getting. But it's local in application. You really need to know who the other caregivers in your community are. You need to know who the, the, the best support organizations, who's running the greatest uh, clinical trials, uh, who might be a medical professional who's there on your side, what kind of attorneys you need. And that's all local. Um, and as I said, this is why I'm thrilled to be here with you today. I'm a big fan of Melody and A Cure in Sight. I just think what you guys do is so important. And I find that uh, anybody who's doing anything of great support for caregivers, you drill down deep enough, there's a caregiving story. There are people who, you know, the caregiving changes your life. My personal journey in family caregiving started 33 years ago as I helped my uh, mom care for my dad who retired in 1990 at the age of 59 and immediately developed bone marrow cancer. And mom went from business partner, traveling partner, love of life for 50 years to family caregiver and all that was, that, that entails. And there, there was a different world back then. Nobody talked about, nobody, everybody was doing it, but it was quiet and isolated and, and it wasn't a, a, such an, a, a thing that everybody's involved in now. If you are, you're either a caregiver, as Mrs. Mrs. Carter said, or you know a caregiver, or you're involved with family caregiving. And it, um, I'm thrilled that the conversation has really become a lot more public than it used to be. Dad passed away a year and a half later, and immediately after, uh, mom became caregiver her, for her parents, who were respectively dealing with Alzheimer's, diabetes, and strokes. You know, doc doctors loved us, uh, insurance companies and not, not so much. At that time, I was living in uh, Atlanta. Uh, uh, my family's in South Florida. I was born and raised there. Everybody uh, was there, and that's where, where Dad lived, and, and Mom still lives, and I live. <laughs> um, but um, I was living in Atlanta getting set up to do work for the 96 Olympics in video. That has always been my, my career. And I would come in once every six weeks or so for a weekend. My brother was in New Orleans. Uh, as a mall uh, executive director, if anybody remembers shopping malls. Uh, but um, between us, one of us would be in once every six weeks for a weekend. And I, and I like to say, being one now, that caregivers are a sneaky lot because mom would make everything look so good and so terrific as much as she could for those two days we were in town. We had no idea what was really going on. Everybody fell in line and we thought, oh, look how much help we are. This is, this is terrific. Why, I remember uh, I would have uh, Sunday calls at the minimum with mom. We talk about what's going on. And one day in summer 94, she couldn't hide it anymore. I heard a crack in her voice. I just said, there's something wrong here. And I called my brother and I said, you know, I got two weeks before some projects are starting and I'm just going to go down and help her out, you know, be a shoulder, make, help her make some financial decisions and, you know, come back to Atlanta and live my life. 
Yeah. So I went down and after those first two days, you can't hide it anymore. And there was so much challenge. Grandpa was having cognitive issues and my grandmother was falling and we were looking for long-term care facilities and in and out of hospital waiting rooms at three in the morning with either one of them. Mom wasn't feeling good. And it was just this circle for these two weeks of life and death decisions and challenges and, and pain and suffering. And, and I remember the night before I was going back to Atlanta, I, I sat with mom at dinner and I said, boy, mom, I'm so glad I came in these two weeks because look at what you were going through. And she was dumbfounded because what to me was the worst possible two weeks of my life was just a normal two weeks in the life of a family caregiver. So once I was aware, once I saw it, I couldn't, I can't, couldn't ignore it. And I went back to Atlanta, gathered my things and came back to be a caregiver's caregiver. I was not, she did not ask me to come back. She wasn't amused that I came back because she didn't want me to deal with what she was dealing with. But I was there to help her as she had doing hands-on help for our, our grandparents. And I found immediately the best support, the best advice, the best hands-on wisdom we ever got was from our fellow family caregivers. Going into three o'clock in the morning to sitting in the hospital uh, waiting rooms that were like two, below, two degrees below frigid in hard, hard seats. I'd like to get the person who invented those hospital waiting room seats and make them sit in one for three hours. Old newspapers, Nixon resigns, you know. And we sat there and at first we just want to ignore, I don't want to bother that caregiver sitting over there. And then you hear their stories and their conversations and you realize, well, I have an answer. I have a solution for that. I, I, I've done that and they have solutions for you. So every caregiver, my, the secret sauce is every family caregiver has a piece of the puzzle that some other caregiver needs. And that's why with the Fearless Caregiver Conferences, it's all about interacting. We don't, we call it the no PowerPoint, no speechifying, no pontificating zone. We put panels of experts in front of them, but we get them to open up and ask questions and interact because that's where the wisdom comes. And that's the secret sauce of family caregiving is to ask questions, ask questions and ask questions. And never stop until you get clear, concise, authoritative and respectful answers from the people in the healthcare uh, community. So we've been endeavoring to support and advise family caregivers since the first issue of today's Caregiver Magazine rolled off the presses in 1995. And you know, many incredible things have happened for family caregivers over the past 28 years since we launched. Uh, we've entered the social networks in a big way. You could join us on Twitter and Facebook, part of our Zoom events that we do regularly, Zoom interviews, sign up for a weekly on online newsletters, or visit us at our YouTube, you know all this stuff, our YouTube Fearless Caregiver channel and all of it through our homepage on caregiver.com. I still wanna know whatever happened to mimeograph, okay? Anybody here over 30 is going, yeah, I get it. Anyone under 30 is going, well, mimeo, what? Because if it doesn't smell like anything, it's not a communication vehicle, right? I want to tell you that 
People always say caregivers are heroes. Yes, we're heroes. You're heroes. I've met a, thousands and thousands of heroes traveling the country, talking to family caregivers. But that doesn't really answer um, the job role. That doesn't really answer anything. It's a, being a hero because it's the old joke about the army where you know they ask for volunteers and everybody steps back except you. You're like, I guess I'm it. I say caregivers have taken on a new job role. I say caregivers are the CEO of Caring for Your Loved One, Inc. You're the most important member of the care team. You're there with your loved one 36 hours a day. The doctor might see him, you know, the, the, an hour every, every month or so. Care managers and, and other uh, professionals may see them a few times a week, but you're the one who knows. And if they're not there respecting you and they're not there getting your advice and they're not there uh, asking your, your, your advice, we, well, I don't wanna say anything because there's some folks in the other room who have this job title, but when I wrote my first book, uh, Fearless Caregiver, How to Get the Best Care for Your Loved One and Still Have a Life of Your Own, I wanted to call it, you can fire your doctor. The publisher wasn't happy about that. So, but you're the boss, you're in charge. And anybody who's there on your team, and I have met some of the doctors in the room, I tell you, these people really get it. The folks you put together for this event really get it. That you're, you're an integral part of this team. Um, but I do wanna, let's go into the damning part of life statistics you know statistics damn statistics and more damn statistics uh and this is something we need to know about as family caregivers and as people caring for family caregivers did you know the average caregiver was responsible to directed expenditure of forty thousand dollars a year caring for our loved ones insurance money their money you know the government your money good 15 20 percent of your annual salary goes into caregiving We'll lose over $600,000 in opportunities and promotions during a lifetime of our career because we can't move, we can't spend the time, we can't uh, grow in the, in the company because of the caregiving we're doing. Over 63% of caregivers consider depression to be our most commonly felt emotion. And as many as three-fourths of heavy-duty caregivers, especially spousal caregivers, are going it alone with no support from other family members and that family members provide the overwhelming majority of home care services in the US, which is approximately 96, 97%. Then why do we do it? Because we can't not do it. Because our loved ones need us. Because we never even asked if there was another way. Because it's who we are. So now what? How do we become being a, how do we go from being a dedicated daughter, son, or spouse to being dietitian, therapist, insurance specialist, immediate medical expert, <gasps> chauffeur, psychologist, pharmacist, and even incontinence ex specialist, and keep our relationships with loved ones, families, friends, and neighbors, not to mention our jobs, which a third of us end up losing. I firmly believe that the way that caregivers can achieve our goals as, care, as family caregivers is actually taking on a new job role. That's what I call being a fearless caregiver. A fearless caregiver is a caregiver who understands that you have a job to do that's just important as any other member of their, your loved one's professional care team because you are a member of that team. And as far as I'm concerned, the most important member of the team. 
Everyone has important jobs to do, and yours is to be a full member of that team. You're no less important than the case manager, therapist, or even the doctor. Family caregivers' jobs is to learn, be our advocate, stand up for your loved ones in, in the healthcare system, and learn everything you can about the, what, they're, what they're going through. This is not, that, see, it's, it's not just important to represent them, but we need to put a human face to our loved ones. Because a lot of times, by definition, the, the system depersonalizes our loved ones. In particular, if someone's in a long-term care facility or in a hospital bed, a lot of times they're just now become patient in room 207E window. And you need them to know, that's my daughter who loved to, to ski, who is a great poet. That's my husband who loved to, used to love to paint. That's my son who's funny. And you need to pay attention to them as a person more than person in bed 207E window. This is a crucial role because no matter how much they care, your doctors, God bless them, they're seeing 25, 35, 45 patients a day and case managers, therapists have a larger caseload than ever before. Over the years, I've spoken with thousands of family caregivers and one thing has become crystal clear. A caregiver can be heard in today's healthcare system and we can be listened to. We found significant common traits around the caregivers who are being heard, respected, and listened to and treated as equals. First, you believe you can make a difference because truly nothing happens until that, until that moment where you're like, not the person sitting in the corner waiting for somebody to tell you what to do, but you're the manager of services, you're the CEO, you will make a difference in your loved one's life. I always say there's two sets of three words caregivers need to know. And one set is just when you're challenged, you're having challenges with your loved one and maybe they don't see what you're doing and you don't, you know, you're not connecting. Put their face in your hands, look, them, look at them deep in their soul and say, I love you. I love you because that's the core of it. Why else are we caregiving? And the second one is, you don't say this to your loved one, but anytime you're working with the system uh, on one of those phone calls with the insurance company, whoever knows where they are, the, the people who are talking to you, trying to hold you back from getting what you need, the medical uh, professionals and government professionals, when you find yourself getting stonewalled, the three words you need to know are, who's your supervisor? And keep going up the chain because the higher you go up the chain, the more they know, the more uh, ability they have to, to, to help you, and the more they need to push you into a place where you're happy, they're happy, and everything moves on as opposed to just being told, no, I can't give that to you. Second, you see your role as your loved one's care as being just as important as any other professional caregiver on the care team. And third, you ask questions. You ask questions, you ask questions, you ask questions, and you don't uh, take an easy no. You research, you know, you don't just say, oh, I heard green tea is good, but you do whatever research you can. Talk to the folks out in the, in the, in the lobby here. Talk to the professionals here. Get qualified 
uh, uh, information that may be of help to your loved one and present that to your loved one's uh, medical professionals. And that's how you become a fearless caregiver. Fearless caregiver is a caregiver who has questions of their doctor and does not rest until they receive clear and concise, authoritative and respectful answers. Fearless caregiver knows their rights concerning their loved one's insurance plan because a lot of time those people on the phone, they don't know. And if you know, you're, you're, you're way ahead of the game when you're talking to them and you're able to exercise those rights. A fearless caregiver is the one who knows how to find the latest treatment options and present qualified research <clears throat> to the members of their loved one's care team. And as I've said countless times to where you're gonna start throwing rolls at me or something, a fearless caregiver is a member of their loved one's care team. But the one single most important thing that any caregiver can do, and here's where I lose the whole audience usually, is care for yourself. The job one for any caregiver is to care for yourself. And then I hear, well, who's gonna, I have to do all this, I'm working 36 hours a day, I can't, I, I, I go to work, I'm helping my love, I can't care for my, and I ask them one simple question when that comes up. I want you to tell me the name of the one person who's gonna step in and care for both of you when you fall apart due to taking yourself out of the care, circle of care. And if you can answer that question, I'll stop pestering you. And in 30 years, nobody's ever answered that question. It is job one. Um, in fact, Stanford University study concluded that uh, caregivers, long-time uh, caregivers will be 40% more likely to die before the loved one they're caring for. Now, that's the bad news. The maybe not so bad news is there's a single reason, a single reason that 40% of caregivers will die before the loved one they're caring for, and that's due to stress-related causes. We can do what we can to help take the stress off family caregivers that takes that number a whole lot, a lot, whole lot lower. So I wanted to, I don't know if anybody has, I, I sent a form around, um, we call the Fearless Caregiver Manifesto. And just as doctors have their hypocrites oath, social workers have their code of ethics, nurses have their Florence Nightingale pledge, if we don't see ourselves as an equal member of that care team, nothing gets done. So I say that we need to have a set of principles just as important as anybody else's oaths, and I call them the Fearless Caregiver Manifesto. There are 10 of them, but I'm gonna sh share a few of them with you. And stop me when I, cause I could just blather. So if you give me a five minute warning, three minute warning, and then you've gone over for 10 minute warning, I could. The first one is as follows. I will fearlessly seek out other caregivers or care organizations and join an appropriate support group. I realize there's strength in numbers and will not isolate myself from those who are also caring for their loved ones. And I know because you're here, you're, I'm preaching to the pews, but for anyone who counsels family caregivers, it's important to understand that many caregivers are hesitant to take advantage of support groups for understandable reasons. You know, I, I don't want to sit in a room where everybody is complaining. I have enough complaining. I don't know what's going on. I don't want to hear about their... And I always say that if, if you're somebody that a caregiver trusts, tell them to go to appropriate, well-led support group three times. 
First time, yeah, it's like you've been parachuted into a bickering family's Christmas meal in Peoria, and you don't know what's going on, but everyone's talking over you and everyone's talking over each other. That's where you might leave, but go a second time. Because if you go a second time to appropriate well-led support group, you start hearing your story and you start hearing people who are going through, you thought you're the only one in the world going through this. There are people going through similar situations. Every caregiving situation is different, but there's a lot of similarities. And people are answering others, each other's questions and people are supporting each other. The third time, I always say that's when the caregiver picks up the phone and tells all their friends about this wonderful, magical thing that they've discovered called support groups. You know, I, uh, we present a Fearless Caregiver Award at every one of the Fearless Caregiver Conferences. And we did one down the street here, in, uh, right down the street in Los Angeles. I don't know, I'm an East Coaster, what do I know? Right, just driving distance. Just down I well, yeah. And, and um, we, I was, we were on a stage and there were uh, you know, a bunch of round tops like here. And we gave a, an award to a family caregiver who came up. And I just did my whole conversation on support groups, why you need support groups, why support groups are important. And she came up to accept the award. She said, I'm gonna tell you the reason support groups are important. Do you see that table of 10 I just came from? There's a table applauding her. That's my support group. They all came, they got off work. They, they got someone to take care of their loved one. They came to support me as I got this award. And I thought, well, that's what a support group's all about. I'll give you another quick word on support groups. As I mentioned, my dad uh, retired in 90 at the age of 59 and developed bone marrow cancer, but he was a gregarious guy. He, people loved him, he loved people. 10 years after the last time he met my college roommate, he, we, I guess we were, we were somewhere and we, we, we bumped into him. He knew, he remembered him, how's your mom, how's this? He just knew people and loved people and people loved him. He was uh, as, as easy to get along with the people who worked on the factory floor uh, as the suits uh, at the, at the uh, organization he used to run. Unfortunately, convincing dad when he had uh, his uh, bone marrow cancer and we knew he was in pain, and we knew he wasn't sharing anything per se with us. He didn't want us to suffer. Uh, and I tried to explain to him the value proposition of support groups. And he, he was sweetest guy in the world, but still ramrod back stiff old Marine from the Korean War years. There was no way. He broke four psychologists. It's like, he went to his doctor, sent him off on these visits, and these, these folks, I think that each one of them now works somewhere out of the field. But anyway, so I'm in, I was living at this point in North Carolina and um, I'm watching uh, the NBC Nightly News and Tom Brokaw, this is how it, in the early 90s, this is how I learned about the internet, how I learned, he used to these lovely five minute pieces at the end of the, his uh, news report. And this one was on the value proposition of support groups for people living with illness because a big report came out saying how important it was. And they did a B-roll, which is like a video cutaway. So 
to emphasize what he, what he was saying uh, in the studio. And there was my dad in a support group at a church down the street from our house. And it was just five seconds, but he had his cane and he slammed it down and they were laughing. Everyone's was uproarious. I called him. I said, Dad, Tom Brokaw had to tell me you're going to support group. And when he died about six, six months later, every single member of that support group was at his graveside because they were a family of choice. We loved him. He loved us. We were his family. But that was his family of choice. And that meant so, so very much to us. Another important principle of the manifesto is I will physically care for my physical and emotional health as well as I care for my loved ones. I will recognize a sign of my own exhaustion and depression and allow myself to take respite breaks and to care for myself on a regular basis. One place I think that all advocates, writers, counselors miss the point when we still take, to, we, we tell caregivers, oh, take a break. Oh, go on a cruise. Oh, take a bubble bath. We, you know, the first thing that, that, that a caregiver says is I can't get away. I can't care for me. I can't do this. I, I have medications to give. I have doctor's appointments. I have things I have to do. I, you know, I'm irreplaceable. Well, to be absolutely accurate, we caregivers have to realize we're not always irreplaceable. There may be no one else like us for a loved one, but someone else can help them for a few hours. The loved one will, your loved one will survive without you for that length of time. And I don't mean to bring this down a little bit. I remember vividly, we used to have an online support group at caregiver.com. And one of the members of the internet support group said, the cemetery is filled with irreplaceable people. Who takes over when the irreplaceable caregiver is gone? So we caregivers are prone to take ourselves all out of that all-important circle of care. We make sure our loved ones get the respite they need, but never give ourselves a break. Make sure our loved ones have all the medical attention they need, but I don't want to ask anybody to raise your hand. And the last time you went to your own medical appointment checkup, make sure our loved ones get all the physical therapy they need. And as you could see, not all of us go to the gym so often. Make sure our loved one gets all the nutrition they, they need and, and, and they're prescribed for them. But most of the time, our meals are, are, are gotten in a drive-thru, ordering through a clown's mouth at 11.30 at night. So I always say to professional caregivers, we are your best in-home partner as you care for a loved one, but we're under great stress ourselves. So celebrate us and help us as we care for our loved ones. Give our loved ones the benefit of your wealth, your knowledge, your talent and experience, but make sure you find out how we're doing too. Pay attention to us. Don't let us take ourselves out of the circle of care because we are, after all, we are wonderful, magnificent CEOs of Caring for a Loved One, Inc., but we're also human. I will also fearlessly develop a personal system of friends and family and remember that others love my loved one as well and are willing to help if I only let them know what they can do to support my caregiving. And this is a biggie. And I would say that if you find yourself talking in front of a room of family caregivers and want to get a sure laugh, make sure that you know for a fact their extended family members are doing all they can to help you as you care for your loved one. It's not so funny, but many times caregiving is a totally isolating life incident. 
but it doesn't have to be. I know people do want to help. I know that a lot of times we caregivers really don't know how to ask for the help. And so we've, in response, we developed a tool we call the reverse gift list. There are so many things we have to do as family caregivers that don't have to do with the direct care of loved one, but have to get done. So I say, make a list, the reverse gift list. 10 people who do bite-sized, easy, manageable tasks and 10 tasks. It might be, hey, come over and, and, and let's cook together and talk about anything but caregiving. It might be for a neighbor who's always saying, what can I do? And you're going, I don't have to do anything. Okay, next time they go to the supermarket, maybe you have a small list, don't abuse it. Maybe they have a small list, you have a small list in money. Can you get me these things? Next time they go to the, the drugstore, next time they go to the, the cleaners. And when I talk to caregivers around the country about the reverse gift list, the number one thing people say is, I, say, they say this all the time, maybe my sister can come and we can just fold laundry and laugh like we used to. Or even my, my, uh, my nephew who is really good with cars, who lives two counties over, can come and take care of the cars once every six months. It's really, really important. Uh, let's give this some of the lists that I've, I've, I've uh, heard from caregivers. Cook dinner for us once a month. Help by pick up groceries twice a month. Watch dad for two hours on a weekend. Just so I could get out. I don't have to, maybe I don't have to get out. Maybe I could just sit there and have a bubble bath while you're watching the football game with dad. Come over for one night to talk. And this I learned from Dana Reeve because we, uh, she's a magnificent caregiver, Chris Reeves, obviously wife, and, and uh, she passed a bunch of years ago, but she was on our cover and I had a, a, a wonderful interview with her a few years before she passed. And she said what she does is she has, well, there are mountains and mountains of insurance problems and questions and concerns and calls that have to be made to insurance companies. So she, the things that she didn't have to do herself, she'd clip together the information, who to call, when to call. And when people say, what can I do to help? She'd hand it to them and say, could you make this call for me? That was, that, that was, that was Dana Reeve. I, I, just, I just absolutely adored her. Um, and this list is, goes on and on and on and is so personal. The thing about it is when you make this call and you ask someone to support you through the, fearless, uh, the, the uh, reverse gift list, you're helping the person you're asking too because they want to help. They're good people. They, they don't know how. You're not saying take over for me. You're not saying, here's the bank account, pay all the bills. But there are so many things you don't have to per se do, and they would love to do. And it helps them. So you're doing them a favor. You're caregiving for them when, when you call them up and you say, hey, do you mind doing this simple, easy, bite-sized, manageable task? And they're thrilled. Mostly, I've actually never heard anybody say, somebody hang up on them or say, no, I won't do that. So... I will fearlessly honor my loved one's wishes as I know them to be, unless these wishes endanger their health or mine, or, or, or their, their health or mine. And that's so important. There's so many times, you know, we have people come into the Fearless Caregiver Conference, and I'm not sure who the caregiver or the care recipient is. Sometimes it's, it's caring by, by the less ill. And you reverse giftless is a great way to, to get that support. But 
And in, in senior care in particular, when you talk about long-term care facilities and people say, I, I always say, don't die by 40-year-old pledges. You said to mom, I'm never going to, don't worry, mom, when you were 12 years old, I'm never going to put you in a old homes farm or whatever they used to call. Where's mom? Oh, she's upstate in the farm. <laughs> no. Um, I, I'm never going to put you in, a, in this or that. And I say, you know, the truth is things have really changed. There's so much support. There's so much um, bigger spectrum of support available that you don't need to die by 40-year-old pledges. Unfortunately, too many caregivers die from this combination of stress, depression, and ill health, or we become unable to care for ourselves, let alone our loved ones, leaving a larger question in the healthcare system answered, unanswered. Who will care for the caregiver and the loved one when the caregiver becomes ill? It's all there for the asking. We just have to change the way we think. So how do we change the way we think? Well, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm old joke central, sorry about that, but it's like the old joke about the tourist goes up to the New Yorker on the street and said, hey, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. So I, I do want to talk about something that I think that we sometimes let go of too easily, that we don't recognize we, that, that it's probably the one most important medicine that we have as family caregivers, and it's humor. Humor is so important. I remember being at, a, I think it was in North Carolina, actually, sitting at a Denny's after uh, an event with a handful of uh, family caregivers, and we were laughing and we were talking, and the conversation, you know, was incontinence and salves and, you know, emergency rooms, but things that happened. And you saw half of the other folks in, in Denny's were like aghast, but two or three tables, they got it. They were laughing. They, they, were, they saw it because they were living it. So what we do is uh, at the conferences and I, on caregiver.com through our free weekly newsletter, uh, we ask for your humorous, real humorous stories about uh, family caregiving. And I just want to share a few of these with you. Um, this was at an event. A caregiver stood up and said, you know, my mom would wander around inside our house living with cognitive challenges, although I could always redirect her from doing something unsafe, like walking outside or using the stove. Um, she would get annoyed when I did that. I get that. I get that personally. I, I truly get that. Um, one day when she was especially annoyed at my redirection, she walked down the hall to the bathroom and stood in front of the mirror. From where I could see, see uh, where I was sitting, I could see her talking to her reflection in the mirror, agitated. A few minutes later, she returned to me and she said, you know that lady in the bathroom is much nicer than you are. Uh, another one, my mom lived in assisted living. This one came over the, uh, an email. Uh, my mom lives in an assisted living facility where everyone left their doors open. One man with uh, Alzheimer's was restless and walked the halls relentlessly. One, um, one visit, she mentioned he tried to crawl in bed with her one night. And I said, oh, my God, Mom, what did you do? She told him he was in the wrong room and he left. And then she said to me at 93 years old, what good is a man in your bed if he can't remember anything? <laughs> Love these things. 
And uh, one in particular, uh, a friend of mine told me this story. She was uh, sitting by her mom's side at the hospice. That didn't mean anything nasty, did it? Oh, 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 three. When you count down to one, I'll know if I've screwed up or not. She said she was sitting by her mom's side holding her hands and her mom was just really not there. And she said, darling, I have to go. And she said, mom, go. If there's a light, go to it. I, I, it's time. You're suffering so much. I, I want you to go. And she, her mom said again, darling, I, I, have, I have to go. And she said, I really want you to go. I, I'm ready for you to leave. Please do what you need to do. And her mom shot her eyes open and said, I have to pee. And then one, I get one more. This happened in uh, Boca Raton at a, at, a, at a conference. A lady came in late and she came up to apologize. I said, you don't have to apologize to me. She said, well, we're at my husband's um, neurology uh, uh, appointment. And the neurologist was testing him. Okay, uh, Dennis, uh, spell this word. And he did it. Spell that word. He did it. And Dennis was getting cocky and full of himself. And the, 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 the neurologist said, okay, Dennis, spell the word world. And he said, W-O-R-L-D. And the neurologist said, well, I'll, make, I'll just up this a little bit. Okay, Dennis, now backwards. And Dennis went, W-O-R-L-D. <laughs> so all I want to say is, God bless you for what you do. Please understand that you're cared for and you're loved and you're supported as well, and that the job one for a caregiver is to care for yourself. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm so blessed to spend time with what I call the true heroes in the universe, family caregivers. Thank you. You see how we didn't rehearse this. Yeah. Yes, sir. I just had a question. Uh, since you've been in front of many, many groups, uh, you know the death, the diagnosis, and our potential behavior. And how does that, how does that, how does that affect the caregiving experience that you need to have in the bank? I have, interesting, we did a big section on our melanoma, specific just um, melanoma itself. Um, and I've spoke at a big group there. And uh, I think, you know, sometimes I think you have to just look at the road in front of you as opposed to the road down the street, you know, where it may or may not be heading because there's just no way to, to, to function. What can you do to serve your loved one? What can you do to serve yourself? What What's the best information you can get? And that the 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 key to this is caring for yourself too. Is there a support group? You're here, so obviously organizations are, are important. Um, and not isolate. I think isolation is the killer. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I'm just riffing. No, it, isolation is the killer. And I don't really care what kind of disease or illness or what kind of diagnosis or what kind of timeline it is. Once you isolate yourself, it's like the, the frog in cold water, then they turn up the 
the, the heat slowly, it, it doesn't know that it's, it's now boiling. That's why you need to share your story. That's why you need to be at things like this. That's why you need to be involved in the organization because, you know, every, every caregiver I've ever spoken to at some point thinks they're the only one in the world going through it. And in this country alone, there's 66.7 million family caregivers. And a lot of times we call our events a day of sharing wisdom because a lot of times when you break down the silos, uh, to give you a quick, quick uh, story, although I'm not known for quick stories, I, I'll give you a quick one. Um, our first conference was in Fort Lauderdale at Nova Southeastern University. We had Robert Urich, if anybody remembers. Lovely, lovely, lovely man. Um, and we had, again, we, we didn't want to isolate it to any kind of particular disease state caregiving. And I thought, well, is this really working? We have 400 people there and there's a lot of interaction. And I remember sitting at a table with um, somebody whose primary issue was uh, cancer and somebody whose primary issue was AIDS. It was 96, something like that. Somebody whose primary issue was uh, uh, MS and somebody whose primary issue was Alzheimer's. And I heard the shared Oh, well, here's how we do. Here's how we do. Well, we never do that in this. No, no, this is how we. And to be able to drop the silos and to, to share your story uh, across disease states, it's astounding what you can learn from, from your fellow caregiver. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I appreciate you asking it. I have a question for you, Jerry. No. <laughs> Go ahead. How do the caregivers get rid of the guilt of, of being able to walk You know, there's some things that I wish we could just take out of the caregiver dictionary. Guilt, shame, fear, you know, pain. The, the, the thing about guilt, we have a great article on uh, caregiver.com about this, is that that's the first thing you need to get rid of because anything you do for yourself, support yourself to make sure that you're stronger and healthier uh, and, and better and come to an event like this, is doing it for your loved one, is doing it for your community, is doing it for your fellow family members. The worst thing is to, you know, if you, if you have to say, well, I can't do it for me, well, you're doing it for them. There is no guilt when you're caring for yourself because caring for yourself is job one for caring for your loved one. So I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question and that I fed it to you. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, 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 and that's that's a that's a biggie, and that's a biggie across the spectrum. I, you know, I work caregiver.com, today's caregiver magazine, fearless caregiver conference, and it's such a hard word because you're not really do you're a partner, you're doing what you can to support them and letting them do what they can. And again, this is this is a big challenge in the cognitive arena, where your 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 loved one says, uh, uh, "I want to still do what I'm doing." Well, what can they do? What part of it are they able to partner with and stay involved and and say, "Okay, I'm only here for you. You tell me what you can do, what parts you want to do, and I'll just fill in the rest." And I think that you know the challenge is that. None of us want to be 
encumbered by or think that we're less than or think that the person who was our partner in life is now our caregiver. So it's, 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 it's on us to find a way to walk that walk to say we're actually, and I, I like this word, care partners. We're both battling this damn thing you're dealing with and I'm doing what I can and you do what you can and we'll meet in the middle. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.